Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 18. Psalm 18 in your Bibles. We have um, Bibles in the pews that we have for our guests who may not carry a Bible with them. And if you use one of those Bibles, you'll find uh, this psalm at page number 350. Psalm 18, page 350 in the pew Bibles. I want to read the first 27 verses of this this amazing psalm. I, I spoke... Uh, from this psalm at a recent prayer meeting on Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it has just been uh, been on my heart and mind now for a couple of weeks. The psalmist is David, and David said, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength, in whom I will trust. My buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. The sorrows of death compassed me, and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress... I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken, because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire. Out of his mouth devoured, coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down, and darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. At the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Yea, he went out, his, he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he shot out lightnings and discomfited them. Then the channels of waters were seen, and the foundations of the earth were discovered at thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, hath he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. And have not wickedly departed from my God. 
for all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also upright before him, and I kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore hath the Lord recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyesight. With the merciful thou wilt show thyself merciful. With an upright man thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure thou wilt show thyself pure. And with the froward thou wilt show thyself froward. For thou wilt save the afflicted people, but wilt bring down high looks. Let's take our Bibles and turn over to Psalm 18. Psalm 18 in your Bibles this morning. Psalm 18 in your Bibles, and we are going to look at this psalm in the context of what we've been studying on Sunday mornings with Jesus Christ and Peter in the high priest's palace the night of Jesus Christ's betrayal and arrest. Let me read a statement, if I could. Um, this is written from a pastor by the name of Sandy Mason in a book entitled, As a Question... Smarter than Jesus? The advertisement of the book, or advertising blurb of the book, says doing ministry the way Jesus would in the 21st century. If you're weary of chasing the latest trend in church growth technology, I invite you to come back to the simplicity and clarity of doing ministry the way Jesus did it, and is doing it through His churches. And... That advertising blurb, advertising a book entitled, Smarter Than Jesus? We would say, no, we're not smarter than Jesus. And so it would behoove us to go back to the way Jesus did things and replicate his instruction. Sandy Mason said this in the book, Smarter Than Jesus. I believe the greatest indictment on our generation of pastors and Christian leaders is the loss of confidence in calling our people to regular times of corporate prayer. Now, you understand what he's speaking of. We all understand prayer. Prayer is communication with God. Uh, prayer is the lifeblood of Christian experience. Prayer is the communion we have with the one who died on the cross of Calvary for our sin. Prayer is our communication in which we get to know God and we develop an intense relationship with Him. And prayer takes different forms. There is private prayer. That's when you shut everything out and everybody out and it's just you alone with God. And you have times of private prayer. But then there's also corporate prayer. Corporate prayer is when Christians meet together 
for the purpose of praying as a corporate body. We see that in the Bible as churches banded together and prayed together. Sandy Mason is suggesting that the greatest indictment of pastors in today's generation is their failure to lead churches to be houses of prayer. Where prayer isn't just one person articulating an opening prayer and a closing prayer like bookends of a church service, but where the church is called to corporately, together, pray as a body of people to God. He went on to say, the consequence is a church and leadership that have put their confidence in the wisdom of men, not the promise of God. God is too slow for our taste. It's easier to find the right talent, the right music, the right program, and give the people what they think they need, rather than wait on God for what they really need. And what we really need, Sandy Mason went on to say, is God. In our lives, privately, families, corporately as a church, we need God. And only God can do what God can do. And God can do far more than what man's ingenuity can accomplish. And Sandy Mason is suggesting that perhaps it's time for pastors and churches to come back to the strength of the church in the book of Acts. And that was the corporate prayer meetings of the church that unleashed the power of God and turned a world upside down that all started with just a handful of untrained, uneducated people who had spent time with Jesus and God used them to turn the world upside down. So i got a question for you this morning. Why do you pray? Think about your prayer life individually, personally, and the corporate prayer times that you're involved in when you meet with Community Baptist Church and you have a time of corporate prayer together. Why do you pray? How would you describe your prayer life? Is your prayer life uh, vibrant? Is your prayer life exciting? Is your prayer life meaningful? If a new Christian asked you, as a seasoned Christian, would you teach me how to pray? And they handed you their new Bible. What would you do? How would you sit down with that new Christian and an open Bible and teach them how to pray? The bluff on your, on your sermon handout this morning, the bottom line up front is this. Praying thrives when a person has a relationship to God. That is dynamic. I believe that's very true. Prayer thrives in an atmosphere of dynamic relationship. You know, isn't that true of all communication? 
You see two people that have a really good relationship. They know each other really well. Uh, they, they, they like the same things. And, and you put them together for a few minutes and they begin to talk and their, their communication becomes animated. And they get to talking about things they both like a lot and, and they have a lot of joy uh, in. And they start talking about those things and all of a sudden their, their communication reveals the dynamic relationship they have. Same is true with communication with God. Because praying to God thrives on a dynamic relationship. For those of you who are typically here on Sunday morning, you know that in our Sunday mornings we've been preaching through the Gospel of Luke and we have Jesus Christ in the high priest palace in the middle of the night after having been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was followed there by John and Peter. And John seems to have left and is out of the picture. And Peter is with Jesus Christ in the high priest's palace. We've left Peter standing in the patio where he had warmed himself by a fire. And, and it's a, it's, there's a lot of people there. The high priest's palace has got a lot of people in it in the middle of the night because of this uh, arrest of this high-profile person named Jesus. And there's a lot going on in the high priest. The Sanhedrin has been, been woke up in the middle of the night and has been gathered to do a court trial. It's the Supreme Court of Jerusalem. And they're trying Jesus in the middle of the night. And, and, and Peter's on the patio, and it's been a very difficult night for Peter. He's trying to be incognito. He's trying to blend in, and he's shifting around the, from the from the patio to the to the entrance to uh, different places, different parts of the palace. He's moving around, and he constantly finds himself in situations where people are are asking him questions. Uh, You're one of his followers, aren't you? No, no, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And he shifts and he moves to another location. Somebody else sees him and says, I just heard you speak. Your accent. I recognize your accent. You're from Galilee. Just like Jesus who we arrested tonight. You're one of his guys. No. I don't know what you're talking about. And, and the night has gone on. And it's, it's been a very difficult night. Peter is in a crowd of people, but he's all alone. He's in a crowd of people, but he doesn't, he doesn't have a relationship with any of them. He's a follower of Jesus Christ, but he's the only one in the crowd that's a follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has been arrested tonight in his own trial. And that makes Peter suspect. So Jesus is in the reception hall with the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas. By this time in the night, they have found him to be guilty and they've roughed him up. They beat him in the face. They blindfolded him and beat him and challenged him to identify who it was that struck him that time. They mocked him and ridiculed him and made fun of him. And all of a sudden, Jesus, no doubt, with a bloody face, bruised from the, from the blows to the face he's taken, Jesus Christ in the reception hall looked up and through two single doorways, he could see out onto the patio. 
And at the very same instant, Peter turned and from the other direction, he looked through the same two doorways and they made eye contact. Jesus Christ, bloody, beaten, and Peter, scared and fearful, their eyes lock and they look into each other's souls. And Peter breaks down. Peter's broken. He's guilty. He's overpowered by failure. And Jesus is understanding. He had told Peter this was going to happen just hours earlier. Jesus is confident. Jesus had told Peter that when he gets through this ordeal, that he will be used by God to strengthen other believers. Although the circumstances would seem to militate against the thought, Jesus delights in Peter. Not because of his immediate failure, denying that he even knew who Jesus was. But Jesus delighted in Peter because he could see beyond the present failure and see the day of Pentecost. See the writing of First and Second Peter. See Peter in his bold standing for Jesus Christ being crucified upside down years from now. Jesus knows that in this lapse of failure, there's going to come strength. Out of the trial will come greater strength. And Jesus, broken, beaten, perhaps bloody, Jesus is confident that Peter is the man that's going to bring great glory to himself and God the Father. And he delights in Peter. Well, that's where we broke off last Sunday. Jesus and Peter Locking eyes. I fully intended that this morning we would follow Jesus into Pilate's hall. and Begin to see Jesus Christ tried by the Roman authorities. Preparing for his crucifixion. However, there's something about Jesus' persistent love for a failed Peter. That has just resonated in my heart. It's intrigued me. The look between Peter and Jesus Christ. You see, Peter's failure and his restoration to usefulness is sandwiched between the prayer life of Jesus Christ and the prayer life of Peter. Jesus told Peter, I'm I've been praying for you because of what I know you're about to go through. And after Peter went through it, and after Jesus met with Peter and restored him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Peter ends up in a ten-day prayer meeting, culminating on the day of Pentecost where Peter will stand and preach And 3,000 souls will get saved in one day as Peter boldly proclaims the risen Savior as the Savior 
that can deliver man from his sin. You see, sandwiched between the prayer life of Jesus and the prayer life of a recovered Peter is Peter in his failure, broken, afraid, struggling. And I kind of think that we need to grasp this amazing Jesus-Peter relationship in the context of a culture of prayer that permeates the Old Testament and the New Testament. But many pastors are fearful has died a slow death in Western culture Christianity. A culture of prayer, Jesus' prayer life, and a culture of prayer, the corporate prayer meeting of the church in Jerusalem. Sandwiched in between is Jesus' persistent love, his audacious love, that followed Peter and pursued Peter until he could restore Peter and use him to accomplish the great things that Peter ended up accomplishing. And so I've been wrestling with this culture of prayer that are the bookends of Peter and Jesus Christ's relationship. I've been, I've been reading and thinking and, and, and deliberating on where is this culture of prayer? And in the midst of all of that, I, I was reading the 18th Psalm. Amazing Psalm. It's a Psalm of David. David. David when he was king. It's a Psalm that is a prayer that David prayed to God. And in this 18th Psalm, I find a phrase that my mind is just riveted on in my meditations. And it's the end of verse number 19, when David said, because he delighted in me. The thought that God delights in me is an astounding thought. The 18th Psalm is a psalm that, that comes from uh, a time in David's life, a season in David's life, a, a season in his life where he had been so attacked. Saul had tried to kill him. Others had tried to kill him. And David had gone through a season of life. That's why in the little fine, real small print above verse number 1 of Psalm 18, we read to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spake unto the Lord the words of this song, in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies, from the hand of Saul, and he said. And then we have the 18th psalm. So the context of this psalm is very interesting. The context of this psalm is that David is going through a horrible time, a season of trial, a season in which... There are people trying to kill him. There are people trying to bind him in and box him in in the ravines in southern Judea. Uh, there are people that are trying to capture him and put him to death. And David acknowledges that the enemies that are trying to destroy him are stronger than he is. 
And he's been wrestling in this season of life in which his problems are bigger than he is. His problems are stronger than he is. His problems are multiplied over and over again. That left him in discouragement and depression. He called it, I am in distress because of this season of my life. But then, but then God, through his gracious interaction, God delivered David from all of his enemies. And after God delivered David from all of his enemies, David is overjoyed. David can breathe again. He's not boxed in. He's not being chased from every direction. He can finally breathe again. He says, the Lord led me into a large place. I was confined and boxed in, but now it's as if I can walk freely again and I can breathe and I can lift my head up and all oh, this is wonderful. And it was in that deliverance from his trials that David prayed this prayer. This is, this is a prayer. Psalm 18 is a prayer. You can go through the psalm. I spoke on this psalm a couple of weeks ago in our corporate prayer meeting on Wednesday night. And, um, and we took just a couple of minutes to, to just note a couple of things in this psalm. And, and I've been reading it over and over since. And, um, and when you go through this psalm, you will find different places where David addresses God directly. Like verse 1, I will love thee, O Lord. He's speaking directly to God. You'll find that throughout this psalm. You'll find it in verse number 25 uh, to 29. You'll find it in verse number 35 uh, to um, 43. You'll find it in verse 48 and 49 in different places. But intertwined between those direct statements to God, you'll find David talking about God. Like verse number 2. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. He didn't say, God, you are my rock. He said in a statement, the Lord is my rock. And you find that throughout this psalm. It bounces back and forth between talking to God directly to talking to God about God. Describing God. Speaking of the character of God. The attributes of God. The, the, the nature of God. He's praying to God. And he addresses God. But then he talks about God to God. And then, and then he sends it to the chief musician and says, add this to our nation's hymn book. And it became a song. And so, it was sung. And for generations, Jewish people would sing this song to the whatever music the chief musician put it to that God did not preserve in his word. He gives us the Lyrics, but not the tune, if you please. They would sing it, and as they would sing it, they would sing it as if they were praying this to God. This is called praying Scripture. When you pray Scripture, when you let the Word of God give you the content of what to talk to God about, that's praying Scripture. For generations, the Jewish people would pray to God the scripture that was written here in Psalm 18. And so it's both a prayer, it's a description of God, and it's a song sung by the people of God, all wrapped together in one. And David's praying flows back and forth between 
conversation to God to conversation about God as he expresses what God, who God is to him as he communicates with God. You see, that's what prayer is all about. Prayer is all about getting to know God by talking to God about God. And the more you talk to God about God, the more you know God. And your communication of prayer deepens your relationship and your relationship with God is revealed in the depths of your prayers. Because praying thrives when a person has a relationship to God that is dynamic. And when you have a relationship with God that is dynamic, it flows out of you in prayer, praying, that is powerful and meaningful. And some of the things that David included in his expressions of God, he talked about his love for God. He talked about his trusting God. He talked about how God is worthy of him to praise God. He described God like he did in verse number 2, talking about God as my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my, my buckler, my high tower. He, he describes God. He retells what God did in his life. He talks about how when he was in distress, Saul was chasing him. Enemies were chasing him. When he was in distress and he had no one to turn to but God, and he called out and cried out to God, he described how he reacted to trouble in life. He described what God did when he cried out to God. He retells the story of what God has done in his life. Are you listening? Are you thinking? Prayer involves you retelling to God what God has done in your life. Talking to God about the things that He's done. Prayer involves retelling to God what He's done. It, it included acknowledgments of cause and effect. You, you, you read and study this psalm and you find there's, a, there's things that, that He did that caused God to do something. When God did something, that it caused something to happen in His life. You find cause and effect in His interactions with God. And all of it is woven into a prayer. A prayer. A prayer. Remember that praying thrives when a person has a relationship to God that is dynamic. Let me, let me just point out to you the four acts that we see unfold out of this psalm. The first act is David's plight. He said in verse number four, The sorrows of death compassed me and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented prevented me in my distress. He speaks of his plight, what, what he's gone through. Due to the hatred of other people, David finds himself surrounded and afraid. He knows that death is a very real possibility. The sorrows of death have compassed around him from every angle. He, he's, he, he's afraid he's going to die. The ungodly men, there are floods of them. There's multiple ungodly men and they hate him. And he says that those ungodly men are surrounding his life and, and, and he's afraid of them. He talks about the sorrow of hell. He talks about the snares of death that have come in, into his life. David's plight is that he is in great distress. Then you see another act that, that unfolds, and that's how David responded to that. In verse number 6, David said that in my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. I called out to God 
Notice he says, he says in verse number six, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. He called out to his God by name and then cried out to him. The word cried there doesn't, doesn't it's not crying like you, you, you shed tears, like you're crying over something that happened and you're, you're shedding tears. It, it's a shout. It's a cry. It's a warrior's cry. It's, it's a battle cry. It's a cry out to God. He's in distress. He's, his plight is serious. And, and he responds by praying. Crying out to God. Calling out to God. And then the third act is God's response. What does God do? Well, verse number six says that when he cried out to God, he heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry came before him even into his ears. This is God's response. God actually heard every word that he said from way up in God's temple. From way far away in God's temple. God heard my cry. My words entered into his ears. He heard in my distress. God heard my cry. And then God acted. Oh, did God act? Verse 7 begins with the word then. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to God. God heard my voice. My cry came before Him even into His ears. Then, then God acted. Whoa, the description of the action of God. David takes all the poetic imagery of nature and violent storms and thunderstorms and hailstorms and lightning and billowing clouds and, and, and the noise and the volume and the power of, of a created world, uh, weather patterns that are in distress. He, he called upon all the poetry and all the imagery to simply say, then God did something about my plight. God moved into action. God did something about what was happening to me. But my God moved. Verse number 17. He said, He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them that hated me, for they were too strong for me. He said, My enemies, my problems are bigger than I am. I can't solve my problems. My problems involve a lot of people. And I can't fix what's wrong. And I can't deal with what I'm going through. But God heard my cry in His very ears. And God was moved to action. They prevented me in the day of my calamity. What does that mean? The the old English word prevented speaks of something that blocks out something by getting in front of it. He said His enemies boxed Him in and blocked Him. In the day of his calamity, they they got in front of him. They boxed him in. There was no escape. There was no exit strategy. There was no way out. All of his enemies boxed him in. But he said, God was my stay, my foundation. God brought me forth into a large place. Those that had boxed me in and confined me, God acted and God did something and all of a sudden I'm led out into a large place. I can breathe again. 
I can lift my head up high again. My enemies are gone. God moved and delivered me. And then the most amazing statement, and it's the final, fourth and final act. The amazing statement is in verse number 19. He delivered me because he delighted in me. My awareness of God's favor in my life. You know, that's an amazing statement. It's an amazing thing to consider. My awareness of God's favor. God delivered me because He delighteth in me. How do you view God? Who is God to you? How would you describe God and His actions to you? David said, He delights in me. When he sees me, he smiles. He posts my picture on his Facebook account every day. He delights in me. Remember, praying thrives when a person has a relationship to God that is dynamic. How do you describe a dad's delight for his child? Well, certainly... It grieves a dad's heart when a child disobeys. Certainly, a dad's heart is grieved when a child displeases him. But but does that episode of disobedience, does that moment of displeasure cause the God, cause the dad to disavow the child, to deny the child? To be angry forever with the child? To be pitted against the child? How do you view God? Do you view God as an austere, angry God who's always angry with you every day? Or do you view God as a dad who delights in his children? Yes, sure, there are times of disappointment. But that's not, that's not the reality of the relationship. That's not the sum total of the emotion. The sum total of the emotion is, he delights in me. David went so far as to say, he delivered me because he delighteth in me. He answered my prayer. He heard my cry. He came to my aid because He delighteth in me. That's what God did with David. David didn't always please God, but God always pursued David. That's what God did with Peter. Jesus wasn't always happy with what Peter was saying, but He always pursued Peter. Because he delighted in Peter. And he had purpose to use Peter in some amazing ways. You know, God does that with you as well. God delights in you. He pursues you. He wants you. 
He hears the words of your prayer all the way up in heaven. And prayer activates God. And He moves into action because He delights in the cries of His children. What does a dad do when a child comes and says, Dad, please? Dad, please? And sometimes the dad's heart begins to break. Sometimes dad looks into his, I wasn't going to give you this. Okay, you can have it. You can have the candy bar. We'll go to the ice cream store. The heart of a dad who delights in his child is moved into action for the better good of his child when they cry out to him in pain and need. That's the way God is to you and I. In verse 20 to 24, David describes what God knows about him. And here's the key. Here's the key. How well does God know you? Not through his omniscience, through your prayer life. How well does God know you through the time you spend with him? You know, there's two places in the New Testament that are very scary places. One's in, in Luke and one's in Matthew. And they both describe the same scene. And Jesus Christ is speaking in both of those places. And Jesus said the day will come when people will come to, to God and say, but God, why can't I come to heaven? And he's going to say to them, not you never knew me as Lord and Savior. He's going to say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. You never spent any time with me. You never talked to me. You never responded to my appeal when I said, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. You never came and talked to me about your sinfulness. You never came and talked to me about why I sent my son Jesus to die on the cross of Calvary. You never came. I sent the Holy Spirit and he wooed you. He drew you with bands of love. He drew on your heartstrings to know how much I love you. But you never responded. You never came. I don't know you. Because you never came and spent any time with me. But here, on the flip side of that coin, is a Christian, David, who says, God answered my prayer and delivered me. He delivered me because He delights in me. Why does God delight in David? He explained it. Verses 20 to 24. He said, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. Uh, I did not put his statutes away from me. I, I, I was also upright. I kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore, the Lord recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands and his eyesight. David, as a Christian, said, God answers my prayer because he delights in me. He delights in me. We spend time together. 
We've gotten to know each other. He knows how much I want to be holy. He knows how much I want to live a clean life. I don't always do the right thing. Sometimes I say the wrong thing. Sometimes I do the wrong thing. I'm certainly far from being perfect. But God knows my heart. God knows I want to follow Him. God knows I want to keep His statutes. God knows I want to... God knows that from my heart, this is, this is the, the description of my life. I'm righteous. I'm, I'm clean living. I'm, I'm obeying God. I'm, 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 and because God knows me, He delights in me and answers my prayer and delivers me. You see, this is the, this is the place where what Pastor Ryan sang about and what David prays about comes together. It's, the, the choir said, I boast only in the cross. I have nothing to boast of of myself. But you know what the power of the cross did in my life? The power of the cross transformed me and put in my life a heart that wants God. I want to communicate with God. I want to please God. And a relationship develops in the life of a saved person. And that relationship is a relationship based on experience of time together, of communicating together, of getting to know one another, of talking to one another. And out of that relationship that becomes dynamic comes a free-flowing life of communication. And I communicate with God. And a church that is righteous, a church that strives to please God, a church that, that wants a dynamic relationship with God, will be a church that develops and, and has a powerful prayer life, talking to God about God. I want to encourage you. We need to understand this Jesus-Peter dynamic that was sandwiched between two powerful prayer testimonies. The prayer life of Jesus and the prayer life of the early church. We need to understand why Jesus was so pursuant of Peter. It's because he delighted in him. Because he wanted to use him. Because he had plans and purposes for him. And when we begin to understand the dynamic of relationship that is developed and displayed in prayer, then we can begin to understand David's prayer in Psalm 18 when he said, I was in distress. and You were the only one I could talk to. And he talked. The long psalm. A lot in it. Powerful prayer. I want to pray. I want to be a person whose communication with God is dynamic. Because my relationship with God is dynamic. You know the most often confessed sin of preachers, myself included, I've heard it over and over again in preachers' meetings. The, often, the most often confessed sins of preachers is, I don't pray like I know I ought to pray. Prayer has slipped in Western Christian culture. It slipped in churches because it slipped in pastors' lives. I struggled with the reality that my prayer life wasn't what I read in the Scriptures. And so I sought God. 
I want. I want to be a person of prayer. And I want to pastor a church of people who have dynamic relationships with God that were built through prayer and then are displayed by prayer. And that's the church of Acts that turned the world upside down. And as that preacher that I started by reading his statement, oh, we can hire, we can hire talent. We can get the best music. We can find the right program. We can do all the things that the church growth gurus tell us is the key to success in church building in America. Or we can become people of prayer and have what God can do to build His church in America. And you know something? Pastor, I'd rather have what God can do than you can do. Jeff, technology, Matt, wherever you are, media, I'd rather have what God can do than you guys can do. That doesn't mean we want the best, that we don't want the best. We want the best. But that's not where it's at. The best is a church that has become a house of prayer. And as a house of prayer, God has moved into action. And God does what only God can do. And revival becomes experience instead of a dream. He delights in me. He wants to talk to me. <laughs> uh, what was that old song? I'm walking on sunshine. Back in the 70s, I'm walking on sunshine. I used that phrase and got in trouble for it because it means something different in some venues today. But back when it was written, I'm walking on sunshine was a guy who liked some girl, but the girl didn't like the guy. And then all of a sudden he found out that she really did like him and said, wow, I'm walking on sunshine now that I know she likes me. Do you realize God delights in you? You talk about walking on sunshine. God delights in me. Wow. He wants a dynamic relationship that is developed and displayed through my prayer life. Do you want that in your life? Can you pray like David? 